Home Street Bank is the sponsor of our podcast. Go to homestreetbank.com to learn more about them. They're our lender of choice, whether your banking needs are personal or business. Great people, great rates, tremendous service. That's homestreetbank.com. Are you making it difficult for a customer to do what they really want to do? It's called sales friction. And we'll talk about it today on The Buyer's Mind. Welcome to The Buyer's Mind, where we take a closer look deep inside your customer's decision-making mechanism to reverse engineer the perfect sales presentation. Now, please welcome your host, Jeff Shaw. Well, welcome everyone once again to The Buyer's Mind, the podcast where we investigate exactly what is going on in the decision-making process. Our job is to make it easy for customers to do what they want to do anyway. And if you understand the way that your customer makes decisions, then you can change your sales presentation to make it easy for them to do just that. Joined as always by our show producer, Paul Murphy. Murphy, let me ask you a question. How difficult is it for you typically to buy a car? It's it's very difficult. Um, you know, you're trying to figure out, is this gonna be for the family? Is this my commuter? There's like 5,000 questions that you have to answer. And then you get down to the nitty gritty. What color do you want? Uh, you know, four wheel drive, two wheel drive. There's too many, too many choices. And then once you've made your choice and you've identified the car that you would like, then oftentimes what we find is that dealers make it incredibly difficult to figure out how to buy it and to buy it with confidence that you're getting a good price and that you didn't get taken advantage of, correct? Oh, yeah. No matter what you do, I always feel like I, I lost. I, I feel like I'm the world's worst negotiator anyway. So we'll get into mm -hmm. it. Now, now uh, when I get to that point, I just feel like I lost. Yeah, yeah. This is a this is sales friction. That's what this is. So uh, that friction takes place when we are, are working with a customer and we find that that there is a strain between the emotional brain and the logical brain. And that's what we're going to be talking about with today's guest, Nir Ayal. We're going to look at sales friction and how that really tends to stress our customers out. And we also recognize that... Um, uh, there are companies out there that are really making a living. I mean, th this, there are companies that are stressing, how do we make it easy? So I think, for example, of the Amazon one-click button, where there are things that I have to buy and then restock. I, I, I'm, I have one particular meal replacement bar for when I'm on the road, for example, uh, that I buy from time to time. So what do I do? I help on Amazon. I go to my uh, orders. Uh, I, I just simply... I scroll through very quickly. It's not hard to find. And then I can click on a button. It's called one click. That's it. And it makes it very easy for me. That's a whole lot easier than getting into the car, driving to the store, and hoping that they have the flavor that I want. And so the concept here is when we identify those friction points, then we can ask ourselves the question, how do we get away from that? I recently purchased a television. Uh, so many details. There are so many things to be looking at. So I found myself talking to a salesperson who was, quite frankly, way too smart. But he wasn't smart enough to realize that the sharing of all of these details that didn't matter to me we're actually getting in the way of me making a purchase decision. Because at the end of the day, what did I want? I wanted to see a hockey puck clearly on a big screen television. That was my goal. That was my drive. That was my desire to see a puck. 
that was it. But I was getting into so many details that what was happening is I was getting stuck between my logic brain and my emotion brain. My emotion brain was all about kicking back from my sofa and watching a hockey game and making it clear. But my logic brain was trying to calculate megapixels worth over here contrasted to the price point over there, contrasted to the amount of light in each pixel. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, and after a while, the brain just locks up. Our job is to make it easy for our customers to buy. In order to do that, we've got to get out of friction. We got to stay away from friction. So let's get into that as we talk today to Nir Ayal. Well, we always love having uh, really smart people on the show who can get into the idea of the way that the brain works. And that's why I'm really thrilled to have Nir Eyal on the show. Uh, I ran across an article that he wrote about distinction bias and why we make uh, horrible life choices from time to time. And I thought, well, I've made horrible life choices from time to time. I should probably read this article. Uh, but then as I studied, I saw that he was the author of uh, a book, a really interesting book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. He's a behavioralist, really, and a very, very interesting guy, speaker, author. You can read his stuff at nearandfar.com, N-I-R and far.com. We'll put that down in the show notes. Kind of a smart guy, as well as it turns out, uh, his uh, Stanford MBA would bear that out. Uh, Near, welcome to The Buyer's Mind. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Don't don't talk too much about this smart guy stuff. I don't want to let down your uh, your listeners here. All right, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, your expertise is really understanding behavior and then uh, creating behavioral change based on what you understand. It, it, is that a, a quick way to be able to sum it up? Right. So, you know, my background is that I've started two tech companies. I've done door-to-door -door sales at my first company. We were in the solar business and I, I'm not one of these typical academics that just likes to read a bunch of esoteric studies. I've actually tried to sell product to real human beings in their homes. I know how difficult it could be. Uh, it's part of why I got into academia in the first place is because I wanted to understand the deeper psychology of what makes people tick so that I could understand how to make them click on my website or sell them a product or do something to help them improve their lives. So what I've devoted my, my professional career to is really understand the deeper psychology of how to get people to change their behavior because what I see out there is a bunch of products that, that people have to offer their customers that would truly benefit their lives if they would only use them. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what I've devoted my time to is understanding that deeper psychology so that people in business can one, design the kind of products and services that truly move people to change their behaviors. And that two, salespeople out there can know how to, to address people and to understand their deeper motivations to, to help them use the products that would truly benefit their lives. Go back to your days here in door-to-door -door sales. Not an easy thing to do, as I think most of our audience would attest. Those have had that experience. Uh, when you went back to that time, and this is before you would launch the career, the very successful career that you have now, when you think back on that time, uh, were you at sea? Were you lost out there trying to figure it out? Or did you look at it and say, well, I think I'm doing okay, but I'm not sure why I'm doing okay? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I always thought as a salesperson that if I just had the best product, that people would just buy it. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly learned that that just ain't true, that you can have the best product in the market, which I truly did believe I had. And yet people, for one reason or another, wouldn't 
buy it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, yeah. I mean, some people did clearly, but then other people, you know, I, w- I was in the solar industry and this was back uh, a long time ago. This was 2002, uh, back before the solar energy industry was as massive as it is today. We were kind of a, a, a pioneer back then. Uh, and I remember going to people's homes and, and writing down, you know, these mathematical calculations of the ROI on their purchase and how great it would be for them and for the environment and how much money I could save them. And sometimes they still wouldn't buy and it drove me nuts. And so that was a big reason why I went to go get my MBA at Stanford was to, to try and understand, you know, business at large, but also what my focus on and, and what I teach today and what I continue to study in, in much greater depth was the deeper psychology behind why they do or don't buy. And what I realized was, is that, you know, experienced salespeople listening out there will, will know what I'm going to say is that people don't buy with their heads. They buy with their hearts. Uh, and, and part of understanding their hearts is understanding the deeper psychology that drives them to purchase. This is something we talk about a lot here on The Buyer's Mind, the idea that that emotional core, not the sappy, syrupy, hand me a Kleenex type of emotion, but just that 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 gut, if you will, um, really does drive us. The, the, the gut says, want, 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 and then the brain kicks in with a nice little convenient logic story to be able to rationalize that away. Um, I, I take it this is not something that you really recognized at the time when you were selling solar because you were looking at saying, the numbers add up, the product is great, how do you not see right. it, but it sounds like they're at the right. core issue. You just weren't you weren't connecting uh, to that emotional center of your of your own customers. That's right. You know, it's interesting. I went into business with my wife, and uh, uh, originally she was kind of the back office, and I was more the front office, and you know, the, the customer facing side. And I do the sales calls. And uh, then we started going out together, and we started making these sales calls together. And it would be um, amazing how. When my wife, who is much more uh, emotionally connected, she has a much higher EQ than I do. Uh, she 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 could you know connect with people personally. I just want to get in there and show them the numbers and you know if either it was a good deal or it wasn't a good deal, and that would be it. And she would connect with them and she would create this social bond. And man, did our sales rate shoot up through the roof when <laughs> when she would join me on my sales calls. And so I knew that there was something deeper there and I wanted to kind of get to the bottom of it. Uh, and it, this isn't just about the soft skills. You know, I've kind of gone beyond that in my, in my career. Clearly, we all know that, you know, you have to earn trust. So that's when I really started to, to, to get curious about what is it about establishing rapport, about re- establishing trust. And now, we, you know, we call this social proof today. Uh, and, and so I wanted to understand the deeper psychology behind why that is. Why do we need so much more than just the logical buy-in from our clients and customers? Why do we also need these psychological factors? It's, it's not that people buy without using their head. It's not that they don't make logical decisions. Clearly, you know, pe- people do decide logically. It's just not enough. You also have to get buy-in from from the gut, as you say. It's interesting to me that when we when a salesperson is very feature focused, very product focused, it almost uh, requires the customer to do an end around um, to to say, well, I would rather get to that product or feature through you, thank you. Uh, but if they don't feel like they're connected along those lines, it, it, we're, we're really driving the customer so deeply into their logical and analytical brain that we're asking them, in essence, to step aside from the emotional brain. And, and Daniel Kahneman once said that when you rob people of their, uh, of their emotional impulse, they make poor decisions. 
Right. No, that's absolutely true. It, it, it's interesting. I remember in uh, I went for sales training to help me improve my my numbers when it came to selling solar systems. And again, you know, I got into the solar business because I am very analytical. I just looked at the numbers. If they save people money, I I assume the sale. And if it didn't save people money, I'd walk out the door and, yeah. and not try and sell it to them. Right. And I went to the sales training with this guy uh, by the name of Lou. And, uh, I, my, my, I watched him sell and he, this was the, uh, a guy who had one of the best closing rates in the country for the product we were selling. And I went on several sales calls with him and my jaw dropped to the ground. This guy, you know, I would come in and, and take out my pencil and calculator and start running numbers for people to show them how much money they would save over using heating oil or, or, or other, uh, or other means as opposed to solar. Lou didn't take out any numbers. He just sold purely on trust and rapport. And, and, you know, years later when I studied what it takes to, to, to uh, overcome these psychological barriers to a sale, I, I, I realized our, uh, the, the psychology of, of what we call friction of, of cognitive load that essentially, you know, the, the client will put up barriers to a sale for anything that doesn't feel right. Even if they can't explain to you what's going on in their head, they're in their gut, they're feeling any kind of resistance to prevent the sale. And, and a huge part of overcoming that resistance is trust, is rapport, is feeling like the person who uh, is sitting across the table from you is like you. Uh, and, and that's what Lou, that's what I really learned from, from Lou is that he first established rapport and trust. And in fact, he, I, I don't think he would take offense to this. He wasn't all that smart. Right? <laughs> he was just such a, a, such a nice guy that everybody trusted based on his physiognomy, on the way he talked. I would come in there and almost be too brainy and too analytical. And that caused people to kind of back away from me sometimes and not want to close the sale. Let me just uh, ask for a clarification. When you talk about the idea of friction and the psychology of friction, are you referring to the friction that a customer is feeling internally between their emotional brain and their logical brain? Or, are you, or is it more of a friction between the customer and the salesperson because the customer wants to buy emotionally, but the salesperson is, uh, is only presenting logically? I, I would define friction as anything that prevents a customer from doing what they really want to do. And so if that, the, the biggest source of friction when it comes to a sale is what we call cognitive load, is the amount of thinking that I have to do to rationalize the, 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 the action I want to take. And one of the, the, the greatest sources of cognitive load is this element of trust. If I have to think about whether I trust you, you've already lost the sale. I should feel I trust you right off the bat. Yeah, that's really, really interesting because the uh, the decision-making process, if I don't have that feeling of trust, is going to get so clouded, right? The, the, the decision is made. It's a creative endeavor, right? It's a decision-making. And so that creative endeavor is all fogged up because there's this whole barrier there. Can I really trust you even with my feelings in the first place? Right. And, and the problem is that it tends to go downhill, that it's very hard to regain trust. There's a, a cognitive bias called confirmation bias, sure. where when we think we decide that we know something, we look for corroborating evidence to show us that it's true. And so, uh, unfortunately, we, we do, uh, or even if we don't, our clients tend to judge us very quickly. And it's very, once you've lost that feeling of trust, if you've raised any red flags in the customer's eyes uh, that, that, uh, that, that may cause that cognitive load, that might create some friction to that sale, it's very hard to gain it back. And, and the reason why is because 
from then on out, the customer is looking for reasons to say, ah, you see, I knew you weren't trustworthy. I see what you're doing. I love that whole concept of cognitive load. We often uh, talk about here at The Buyer's Mind, the concept that, that there's just that psychological shortcut, that the brain is constantly looking for the easiest way and that in essence, easy equals right. The easier something seems to me, the, the righter it feels to me, that seems to bear out with what you're talking about when we discuss cognitive load. Absolutely. I mean, this is why, you know, when, when we think about, uh, I study a lot of, of digital products and part of what we do when it comes to the most habit forming products online, when you think about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat, what they've done so incredibly well is that they have decreased the friction. They have made it as easy as possible for the user to take the intended behavior. And we want to learn from those companies. You know, if you really want to be really good at something, you want to look at the best in the business. And if there's one thing that the, the digital revolution has taught us is that the easier you can make something to do, the more likely people are to do it. And so it's incredible how many barriers we put in the customer's way uh, when they want to do something, right? They want to, to, to create the sale. They, they want to move forward. And yet, you know, a lot of folks put too many barriers in their way, you know, the, the paperwork or, uh, you know, any kind of decision fatigue or, you know, sit through my stupid presentation for too long. You know, all of these things that we put in the customer's way, we always have to be very sensitive to how can we make the decision that the customer themselves wants to take as easy as possible to do. So you're suggesting here that that customer doesn't really want to get uh, escorted back to the finance office where the hard closer <laughs> is going to come in and, and do some sort of funky worksheet. And then and then when you make an offer in the car, he's going to look at it and go, oh, I'm going to get fired if I take this. We've never... You're suggesting customers don't like that, Tanir? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> How crazy. could that be? How could yeah. there be an entire, entire new disruptive technology coming out? You know, we've seen many companies you know, their entire value prop, particularly in the car industry, is all about, you know, don't talk to anyone. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Exactly. If you think about, there's been several companies. I don't want to, I don't want to give them a free commercial, but there's been several companies now uh, that, that made car buying in particular very easy by, you know, just click a button like you would check out on Amazon yes. and people relish that, especially millennials. You know, mm -hmm. it's amazing. Uh, we're seeing this generational shift of people who have grown up uh, expecting things to be hyper optimized and incredibly easy. They don't want to talk to salespeople. They don't want to talk to a service rep. They just want to text them. Uh, they just want to, you know, push a button to get the service that they're looking for. Let's talk about the book. And uh, the book is called Hooked, How to Build uh, Habit-Forming Products. And I love the, the concept of habit-forming because when you think about those really, really great products that are out there, they are habit-forming. There's no question about it, whether it's, uh, not, I guess the easy uh, example is Starbucks, but that's a different sort of habit, isn't it? Uh, but Facebook is a, is a habit-forming uh, pr uh, product. You know, um, uh, LaCroix is a habit-forming, you know, a, a craft beer is a habit-forming product. Um, so, but I want to just chat a little bit about that hook cycle where you talk about tree Trigger action, uh, variable reward, and investment. Break it down for us and, and uh, uh, easily enough that uh, somebody like me can figure it out. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a pretty simple concept. The idea is that in order to create a product that people use on their own, unprompted, without spammy marketing or mm -hmm. expensive advertising, what we want to do is to create a habit, is to create some kind of association. And so what I wanted to study 
are these world-changing companies like Google and Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and Slack and Snapchat, these companies both in enterprise products as well as consumer web products that have so profoundly and quickly changed consumers' behavior. How did they do it? You know, like I said before, if you want to be the best at something, you want to figure out how to talk to people who are better than you. And so if we want to create the kind of product that people engage with frequently, out of habit, let's look to the best in the business. Uh, and by the way, you know, I, I, I highlight a lot of tech companies in this book because they're doing it in such a special way. But the, the model exists in all sorts of industries, not just online. And the idea is that you know, the way you would create customer loyalty before the web was through what's called the, the mere exposure effect. That if you expose a customer to an image enough times, to a brand, to a logo, uh, they create a higher affinity for it. And this is why we see billions of dollars spent on Geico commercials and Coca-Cola ads, because they are using the mere exposure effect, commercial after commercial after commercial. Here's the thing. When was the last time you saw a billboard for Instagram <laughs> or a, a Super Bowl ad for Slack. Right. Uh, you, you don't see them because they spend almost no money on advertising. They're not using the mere exposure effect. They are doing something very different in that they have created the product itself to change a user preference. And the way that is, I just building into the product experience what I call the hook model. And the hook model mm -hmm. is, is, is comprised of four steps that through successive use, by passing people through these four steps, this is how a customer preference is shaped and this is how tastes are formed. So we can, I can walk you through these four basic steps. It's a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. And it's through successive cycles through these hooks that the customer preferences are attached to uh, what I call an internal trigger. Now, an internal trigger it tends to be some kind of pain point. Uh, this is a very important insight from consumer psychology that you need to understand that every time a customer interacts with your product, they are using that product for only one reason. And that one reason is to modulate their mood. They want to feel something different. Everything we do, it used to be, you know, in the psychology community, we used to think that people are motivated by pain, uh, but motivated by seeking pain and avoiding pleasure. Turns out that's neurologically not exactly true. That in fact, everything you do is motivated to escape discomfort, including the products we buy and use. And so what you have to do as a, somebody who's building a habit-forming product, if you want people to use your product automatically without spammy advertising or expensive marketing, you need to attach to that internal trigger, to that pain point, so that they use the product habitually out of little or no conscious thought. Again, of course, you know, this is all about benefiting the user. We don't want to use this maliciously. Of course, we're not creating addictions here. The idea is to run people through these four steps in your product experience to trigger the action, the reward and investment. And I can talk about those four a little bit more detail. That is how we change these customer habits. You know, we uh, 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 teach a lot the concept, the idea, the framework that everybody buys essentially for the same reason, because they have a desire to improve their lives. But inherent is that is that there's something about my life that needs to be improved. If I didn't have a need for improvement, I, I, I wouldn't be looking to make a move in the first place. But what you're talking about is inventing something that people haven't even asked for. 
Right. I mean, that's that's sort of the like the, the Steve Jobs uh, uh, approach to, to look at it and say people could not have said, gee, I sure wish I had this phone that did all these different things that I could hold in my hands. I, he just invented it and then they came. Right. So, OK, so here's the thing. Uh, could people tell you they wanted the iPhone before it existed? Absolutely not. But could people tell you that they had a need to connect with loved ones? Of course. Could they tell you they had a need to satiate their feelings of uncertainty about what's going on in the world to look up information? Of course. You know, these are age old human needs. And by the way, we're not creating these needs. That would be sadistic. We're not creating pain points. What we're doing is to understand a higher order level of thinking here in terms of what people really need in their lives, right? Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, the need to connect with others. These are core human psychological needs that human beings have had for 200,000 years since our species was on the face of the earth. We have always needed these things. And so what great products do is help people satiate these deeper and permanent human pain points. Uh, it's not just about uh, helping people live a better life. It's, that's great. That's the end result. That's the byproduct but really to understand what kind of solutions to build for your customer and how to market a product, we have to go down to those base human needs, those what I call the internal triggers, those negative feelings that people are looking to escape with your product use. You know, I, I often teach sales professionals that if you figure out what your customer is coming from, you'll figure out what they're moving to. But so often we tend to look at it from the idea of, let me show you how great your life is gonna be but that discussion is completely out of context because we don't understand what your life is like now. It seems that yes, oftentimes yes. we're kind of skipping a step uh, uh, to go into how great your life is going to be if we really don't settle in on, on, on what your life looks like today. That's so, so true because the, the, the problem is by only focusing on this you know, surface level need, uh, what we're doing is limiting the customer to just one potential solution. And sometimes, you know, that solution doesn't fit, but we never know why. We lose a sale thinking they just didn't like our product. What we missed is that we didn't understand their fundamental human need, right? Uh, and that was a big, big deal, right? So when I was selling solar, uh, one of the things I, I, I came to realize is that it wasn't just about saving money for people. I had to understand why they wanted to save money. Was it about security for their family? Was it a certainty need uh, that they had that they wanted to solve? And that only when I understood those internal triggers, that psychological state that they were in, could I make the sale by under by tailoring my product to meet their needs. Just awesome. It's just such great, great stuff. Hey, B, this is really fascinating, uh, Nir. Before you go, uh, we got to put you on the hot seat. We always do this on uh, the podcast. Uh, quick questions, quick answers. You ready? Sure. All right. It's the opportunity to get to know you. And by the way, that sure, it sounded a little bit question-like. I don't know. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. <laughs> well, that's hey, I got I got Murph, my show producer. He's he's good at editing if you screw it up. So don't worry about okay, it. Okay. Right, here good, we go. Here good. we go. I'm, all right. You're, uh, you're very, all right, let me say that again. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> your very first job was what? My very first job was uh, I was an AmeriCorps volunteer. Oh, love it. Love it. When, when you were 10, you thought you would be what? An Air Force pilot. Okay. Uh, the most beautiful place you've ever stood? Uh, Bali, mm -hmm. on the beach. Love it. Uh, any book that you that have you read that has made a profound impact on your life? First thing that comes to mind is Addiction by Design by Natasha Dauschel. Uh, a movie you've seen multiple times, but you would can't help but watch it when it comes on again? Empire of the Sun. 
and your very first celebrity crush? Uh, the the lady in Back to the Future. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah. Marty McFly's girlfriend? <laughs> 1985, yeah. Wait, wait, do, do you mean his mother or his girlfriend? Let's be clear on this No, one. no, the girlfriend. Okay, all right, fair enough. The mother was <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're off the hot seat. All right, th that was just really, really uh, fantastic. Uh, Near AL, the book is uh, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Go to his website, nearandfar.com, N-I-R-A-N-D-F-A-R.com. We'll put that in the show notes. Really, really interesting stuff. You can follow his work and uh, get a sense of, uh, of of what an asset he is uh, to the community of people who want to understand their customers so much better. Near, thanks for being on The Buyer's Mind. Oh, my real pleasure. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, loved that. I mean, it, it, it's so great to see, you know, there's such a broad array of research out there and studies on the way that the brain works, on the way that people make decisions. And yet over and over again, I'm almost surprised at how consistent the experts are on many of the things that we talked about. Um, I really did love the fact that Nir brought some brand new stuff to us that we haven't heard of the buyer's mind, but uh, overall very consistent with the things that we for it before, right, Murph? Well, and I was beginning to wonder if you had coached him before we got him uh, in the interview because he kept saying, you know, easy equals right and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, so many other right. things that were like, hmm, I think he's been studying Jeff Shore. <laughs> uh, but but certainly as he looked at it from his perspective of, you know, if, if I think so many salespeople make the mistake, if I have the best product, people will buy it. And he said, it's just not true. And I, I love the idea that what happened, he, he took his wife out on sales calls and people responded more with her, not because she had more product knowledge, but because she had a higher emotional quotient. I thought that was a very interesting take. And, and not that it really surprised me. I kind of sensed that the same thing would happen to me if Karen was out there. Well, and I think the same thing would happen if my wife Cynthia were out there with me as well. I'd, I'd need her to do the emotional feel-out because I just have no EQ. Sure, yeah. <laughs> the the idea of uh, cognitive load has got my head spinning a little bit. I just love the idea that the amount of thinking that a customer has to do in order to accomplish their goal is just critical. And there is that, uh, that friction um, that prevents a customer from doing what they really want to do anyway. And it's interesting because as salespeople, we sometimes think, well, I'm doing my job when I'm explaining the product, when I'm talking about how great it is. And I kind of look at it and go, no, 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 no. That's that's oftentimes adding friction. So, you know, if we're going to describe something in great detail, you know, let, let's suppose you sell financial services and you're trying to explain to me uh, how markets shift day to day. And what I really want to know is, where's the safest place for me to put my money at this point in my life? That's an emotion-based statement. If you're getting into this on all kind of detail level that I don't even understand, then what's going to happen? You're creating friction. You think you're doing your job, you're creating friction. And while you're creating friction, you are increasing the cognitive load that Nir talked about. And I'm just telling you that this is such a huge, huge issue. At the, at the customer's core, it's not that they are lacking information. If somebody's trying to sell me financial services products, I can go online and I can figure out what their financial service products are, how they work, what they're going to... I can, I, can, I can learn online. I can take a course. I can do what I need to do to know about how the instrument works. What I need to know is one thing. Can I trust you with my money? 
And if I can trust you with my money, then great, take me wherever you think that I should go. But if I can't trust you, because I don't think you really know me in the first place, because all you're doing is talking about your product, uh, then there's no way I'm going to give you that business. We've got to find ways to reduce mental friction. We've got to find a way to make sure that our customers are, are sensing that cognitive ease, because at the end of the day, as we've always said, easy equals right. And I just want to suggest you uh, just look at your sales presentation front to back and ask yourself the question, where do customers get confused? What would be potentially confusing if I didn't know anything about my product? What would confuse my own customer. What would that what would that look like? And it's a great way to be able to evaluate your own presentation and figure out what you can simplify. But I would also ask you to do one other thing. In your next sales presentation or your upcoming sales presentations, really go in with the idea that I'm going to look for those times, for those moments, when my customer is clearly confused. I'm going to look for those moments when my customer is uh, at odds. I'm going to look for those moments when my customer is is like, I don't quite get it. Uh, it they're processing the last thing I was talking about, and I'm looking at the next thing. These are dangerous, dangerous moments. And when you see those moments, stop, back up, and ask a question. How, how are we doing? Is this Is this making sense to you? Just take the opportunity and get inquisitive about your customer. Is this making sense? Are we on the same page? Are you tracking with me? And if we're able to do that, if we're able to just slow that down a little bit, it makes a huge, huge difference in providing the cognitive ease that your customer needs so much. Our job is to make it easy for our customer to buy. And when we do our job right, we change their world.